We're in our series, second week, on Satan. And it, uh, it's a daunting task. It should be a fearful task for us to some, to some degree. And I hope you come into it again this morning prayerful. We're on our second week. Last week we talked about what it, what it is to have Satan come against us in his very nature that he is a liar. He is a deceiver. This morning we're going to look at the next scheme. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in second, actually, excuse me, First Corinthians chapter nine. First Corinthians chapter nine, and go ahead and turn. Turn while I'm uh, introducing the topic here. Let me tell you what this passage is about before I read it. First Corinthians nine will be in twenty-four through twenty-seven. If I say the name Ben Johnson or Pete Rose. Or Joe Paterno, or uh, more recently, even Lance Armstrong. What do you think of? Well, I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Let me read it to you, and maybe you'll figure out why. Paul, in the context to the church at Corinth, in chapter 8, has told them that you can't just do whatever you want as a Christian. Sometimes you give up your own rights for the sake of those around you. Is that right, church? That sometimes, even if it would be okay for us to do, we forego doing that thing because it would be better for those who are around us. Does that happen sometimes? That God calls us to lay down our rights for the sake of the brethren, and even, mind you, for the sake of the future brethren, for the sake of the call to the lost, that there are some things that we might give up, he does. That's chapter 8, 1 Corinthians. Chapter 9, he's going to use himself as an example in the first half. And he's going to say, here's how in my life I've laid myself down. I've given some things up that by my rights in Jesus Christ I could freely have, but they're not worth it. And so I've given it up. At the end of chapter 9 in verse 24, he uses, he uses an illustration that will be helpful for us this morning in our second week on the topic of how Satan would come against us. It's a common illustration to the Corinthian church. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? They would know that. Run in such a way then that you may win. Just outside the doors of this church there in Corinth. There were something akin to our Olympic Games, the Ismithian Games, and I could say it better if my mouth worked better. Every three years they would have what we would call the Olympics. And they didn't have high school and college sports to weed out those guys who should be in the Olympics and those guys who shouldn't be in the Olympics. So they had certain standards. And one of the ways that they determined how you got into these elite games was by your serious commitment to the task at hand. So Paul's going to call upon this, this very well-known example of these games, and he's going to use it as an illustration. Don't you know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? And they would. There would be many who would run in the race, but only one guy would win. 
That's just how a race works. There would be second and third and fourth place, and there would be participation awards, right, that you get like when you're in elementary school. You get that one ribbon, and you come home, and you're like, oh, I got a ribbon, Mom. And it's a ribbon for participation. Some of you kids have gotten this. I remember I had all kinds of ribbons when I was a kid for the presidential, you know, what was that thing called, the presidential fitness health thing. I don't even think they do that anymore. But I'd come home with all these ribbons. And as I remember as I got older, I'd look back at some of those ribbons because I still had them. My mom still kept them in a box. I went back and I looked at them and they were participation, participation, participation. I never won a thing. Man, was I proud. Only one guy really gets to win. Only one guy gets to win. Everybody, everyone knows that. They knew this. Those who run all run to win. They all run for the prize set before them. So run in such a way that you may win. Christian, what does that mean? Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Now, you've got to follow the illustration. You've got to follow the analogy because he's going to bounce back and forth to the games that they're well aware of and what he's going to call this race that is our Christianity. Everyone who runs, runs to win. Gotcha. You run to win. Okay? Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. What does that mean? What that meant to his hearers is that if you were going to participate in these games, you had to make a 10-month commitment at minimum that you were going to abstain from certain things. You weren't going to eat certain things that everybody else could eat. You weren't going to drink certain things that everybody else could drink. You weren't going to participate in certain activities that everybody else in Corinth was participating. Whether they were good or bad, there were just some things you said, if you were going to compete in these games, you were serious enough that you would not do those things. That's what it took to to be a competitor in those games. If you were going to run that race, you had to say, I'll not do this, I'll not do that. And if you couldn't measure up, if you couldn't, Submit to those standards and rules you didn't get to play. And everybody knew that. That's what Paul's talking about. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They say no to some things that everybody else is saying yes to. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. They would get a crown if they won. It looked like a wreath that you would hang on your front door around the holidays. It was, a, it was a crown that was a twisted uh, pine or laurel branches, some sort of branch, maybe flowered, but it would be twisted together and you would make it into a circle. It would be a crown that you get to wear. And Paul points out what they all knew, that the guy who gets that crown, that's great and all, but his crown from those games is going to rot. And after just a short few weeks, it was going to fall apart, deteriorate, and it'd be gone. Understand? We understand, Paul. See what he says. They do it then to receive a perishable wreath. But we, why do we run the race we run, Christians? What is our promise? Is our hope fleeting? Is it shaky ground? Or do we run for something that will not rust, that moth cannot eat, that thief cannot come in and steal or destroy? Our crown, Paul says, is imperishable. That golden crown that we receive in heaven, that crown of life that is promised to us, we get something that will never fade away. So in in their minds, they should be thinking now, yeah, I, I get what you're saying here. And Paul, you know what? This race that you're talking about, that you're comparing these games to, what you're talking about must be much more important. Paul says, amen. You got it. Are you getting it? 
You following Paul's logic here? Keep going. 26. Therefore, I run in such a way. He's not talking about a race here. He's talking about life. I, Paul, run in such a way as not without aim. It means not without purpose, not without goal, not without something that I'm striving towards. I'm not just running willy-nilly. I'm not just running aimlessly. I'm running towards the goal. He's running towards the tape, as it were. He has an end in mind. I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Paul says, I'm not just shadow boxing here. I'm not just swinging at air. I'm swinging to dot that guy in the eye. Now don't worry here, parents, because he's not talking about somebody else. We're going to find out right now that he's talking about himself. 27, but I discipline whose body? My body. We're going to find out that he's, he's running this race against his own flesh. He's fighting the fight against his own self. He's boxing his own will. I discipline my body, verse 27, and make it my slave. Are you doing that, Christian? Is that what it means for you to be running this race of life? Or are you running without aim? Are you running as if there's no end? Are you running as if there's some perishable trophy to be won in this life and that's all? Or are you running with the aim, with the hope, with the knowledge that God stands, waits on the other side in judgment? Uh, Let me just stop right here. Many of you may not know this as Christians. You will be judged. Do you know that? We, we tend to believe that because we escape the judgment of sin, that we escape judgment altogether. But that's not true. The Bible says that in Corinthians 1 and in 2 Corinthians 5, you will stand in judgment, Christian. 2 Corinthians 5, you will stand in judgment for the deeds you have done in this life, whether good or, he says, interesting phrase, whether good or light. And he equates the things that we do in this life for ourselves or for the, the, the honor and glory of humans. He says they're like chaff. When they crush the wheat, that chaff, that dust just flies up and it blows away. He says the things you do in this life that are for you or for your glory, those are light things. They just, they're gone. There's no weight to them. There's no, literally there's no glory to them. You, you will be judged. There are crowns that await. The Christian. Do you, do you run the race that is the Christian life aimlessly, without goal? Are, are you fighting like you're just fighting against the wind? Or do you understand that this, this race comes to a conclusion? There is a judge at the end. There is a, a bema seat, just as in the race Paul uses to illustrate. Paul says, no, I buffet my body, I discipline my body, and I make it my slave. So that, and here's the key, here's where we're going. So that after I have preached to others, that's what the Christian life in Paul's estimation is to be about. It's to be the sharing of the gospel of glory to a lost and dark world. That's what Paul gave his life to. Do you know that? Is that the aim of your life in any form or fashion? It, it ought be. It ought be. That, that could be a summary verse for Paul's life. It ought be a summary verse for our life. In some form or fashion, your life ought not to be about the things that you're gaining glory over, the things that you're striving towards, the finish line of your own making. It should be 
the goal, the finish line, that tape that God has put up. Namely, the preaching to others. Paul says that I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be, what's the word? Disqualified. Disqualified. Paul had it in his mind that it was very possible for him to live his life, to run this Christian race, to fight the good fight, and not fight it well enough. Paul understood that he could be disqualified. If you didn't measure up to the standards you committed to when you joined in these games, you could be disqualified. If you said that I was going to not do some of the things that everybody else is doing so that I could compete in this game, and you were found to have lied, you were found to be guilty of doing the things that you said you wouldn't do, eating things you said you wouldn't eat, participating in things you said you weren't going to participate in, you could be disqualified from these games that Paul is using as an illustration. He takes that example and he says, listen, in our lives, Christian, we are to be fighting towards something. We are to be about the preaching of the gospel. And all the while, long as we are preaching along in our life, we must guard ourselves lest we be disqualified from the very event itself. So follow Paul's logic. Chapter 8, he says, listen, there are some things that, that, you know, they may be fine and dandy for everybody to do. But guess what? We live, Christians, by a higher calling. You know, sometimes we like to say that as Christians we live separated. And that's true. That, that there's the normal worldly life, but we live a different way. Uh, that's only part of it, according to Scripture. Scripture would indicate that we don't just live separate on a different path. We live in a more excellent way. It's not just that we live over here. We live over here. We're called to a higher calling. Do you know, Christians, there are some things that by your rights, maybe, you could justify being participants in. But Paul says that there are times and there are occasions where we even give those things up. And Paul would say in chapter 9 in the beginning, I'm completely willing to give those things up and write off those things for the sake of the reason I'm here. And if I decide to go ahead and indulge and be a part of those things that I said I would never be a part of again, Paul understood that that would very likely disqualify him. Spiritually speaking, we are the called out ones. That's what it means to be holy. We're told to stay away from some stuff, aren't we? We're called to a higher standard. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We're not supposed to steal. Pretty basic things, right? But what if we could just measure up to those things? We don't jump on every political bandwagon that comes around just because it sounds Christian. Just because we think we have the right to complain about something against our government doesn't mean that we should do that, Christians. Why? We have a higher calling. We have a calling that not only says we have new rights, but we forego some of our rights to put others ahead of us. Not only do we put others ahead of us, we put the glory of God ahead of our own rights. Do you run the race that way? Or do you run the race looking out for numero uno? To be disqualified from the sharing of the gospel was Paul's fear. 
It meant not only that in the coming judgment God would be displeased with him, that when Paul stood at that Bema seat, there would be crowns lacking. Because maybe he decided to indulge here or there and not fulfill his commitments. Paul, Paul knew that very well. But Paul also was very aware that in his life, even before his death, he might be benched. He might get benched because of his disqualification. Are there ways, Christians, that we could get put on the shelf because we decide we're going we're gonna to chase after our own rights instead of submit to what's best for others and what's best for the glory of God? There are times, and it happens all too often in the church, that we who run this race of Christianity end up on the sideline and not in the game. We disqualify ourselves from the very testimony, from being the very light that we're called to be. So here's scheme number two of the devil. If he can't deceive us, and that's his number one ploy, he's a liar from beginning to end. He seeks to find a way in and tell us where we've gone wrong. He seeks to call into question the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the virgin birth, and on and on and on, the inerrancy of the scriptures, etc. If he can't deceive us at the very root, the very foundations of our theology, and he'll try that every day for the rest of your life. But if he can't deceive you, if you hold strong there, you know what scheme number two is of the devil? He's going to look to disqualify you. He's going to find every way he can to get you out of the game. He's going to find every ploy, every scheme, every angle to get you to disqualify yourself. So even if he doesn't get you into error, guess what? He's gotten you out of the game. Does that happen in Christianity? It does. Satan would love for the church and the individual Christian to be regarded as what one preacher called a tabloid. You know what a tabloid is? You pass by them in the grocery store as you're checking out. Luckily, they started putting those little, you know, clear buffer things there so you don't really even have to pay attention to them. But I, every time I go by, I'm, I'm reading the things. I don't know who actually buys them, but they're, they're, they're entertaining at the very least, right? And so sometimes I'll pull the little tab back just to see what nonsense is on there. It used to be that the National Enquirer you would go by the National Enquirer and you would stop for a second and say, they, they really found that in that cave in, in Arizona? Really? With two heads? Really? And it, and it makes you stop and, and think for a second and, you're, and then you quickly realize, no. And after just a few times of going by the National Enquirer and seeing that it's just nonsense after nonsense after nonsense, right? And the kids are in here today, so I, I'm going to forego a couple of my illustrations of of what I've seen on these magazine titles. But I don't think Obama is a North Korean droid uh, planted here. I don't think that one's right. Um, yeah, I'll let go of the Kim Kardashian example. Um, what you've come to know of the tabloid is that they're unbelievable, right? That's the point. They're unbelievable. They have no credentials. Why? They've never given you any reason 
to give them any credit. They're found time after time after time to be lies, to be fraudulent. Stories that seem amazing on the front page. But guess what you find out? You find out they're not true. They don't pan out. They're unbelievable. You know that Satan would have your life, Christians, Satan would have this church to be viewed as a tabloid? We have unbelievable stories of grace, of mercy, of Christmas, of Easter, of resurrection, of virgin birth, of the deity of Jesus Christ incarnate on earth come to save man. We have amazing, glorious stories. But when your life, when your life stumbles and falls, guess what it gives the world permission to do with the front page of our church? Tabloid. That's unbelievable. Why? Because it's not panning out. I mean, the truths we say are life-changing don't seem to be changing lives. If I went through the names of well-known Christians who've fallen to temptation and made the gospel to be a tabloid, it would sicken, if not anger you. It would, at the very least, depress you. I don't have to go through the names. You know them. The world loves to plaster them on the front page. And you know what? Maybe they should. How dare we ask them to believe something that we don't, we don't in fact live out with our own lives. Let them put it on the front page. Why should we blame them when we are the ones who stumble and fall? They should, they should cry fraud. I could tell you story after story of men who because of compromise are now viewed as just that, frauds. Once very real and viable ministries now that are null and void. At the very least, they've been placed on the shelf no longer to be used in the same way. Disqualified. Their testimony, it's a fraud. Many, I read a story of a pastor last night who wrote in to um, Christian Magazine, had pastored for 24 years, straight, had a very, by all indications, successful ministry, fell. And he just wrote this heartfelt letter to other pastors. And in there he said, you know, he said, I can't even sit in a church now without just being guilt-ridden. What a shame. He said, my health has failed. I've lost my marriage. And he went on and on and on. Sad stories. Don't be fooled into thinking, though, that those stories are only of those in the pastorate. Those are just the ones that make the paper. Because your stories happen every day. Um, Kimberly and I, two weekends ago, we had the chance. We, we were at a marriage conference for uh, military personnel at the Cove. It's the uh, Billy Graham Conference Center up in Asheville, North Carolina. If you've never been, I recommend it. Beautiful place. And uh, a big part of what the Cove is, it's, it's kind of a storyboard of the life of Billy Graham and his family and his wife. 
and their crusades. And you go down these halls and they just have uh, just in, in pictures and in, uh, in placards, just the story from the very beginning of his, of his preaching all the way to where he is right now in life. How old did they say? Is he being 94 this year? Kimberly, can be 94. Well, honestly, Kimberly and I, when we first got there, we were asking, is this guy still alive? You know, I had to ask myself, is he still alive? His wife passed away a few years ago, but he's still on the mountain. He's still on the mountain. And uh, just as an aside, he's going to preach what they're saying is his last sermon in November. And it's going to be nationally televised. I expect, and uh, our, our church are probably going to get involved in, in something related to that, but I expect that it will be the most viewed thing ever in all of TV. Don't you think? I think it will be. And we're going we're gonna to get in on that, and I'll tell you how in the coming weeks and months. He's going to preach his last sermon. I was walking down those halls, and I was reading his story at one point in time. Kimberly was off doing a small group or something. And I was just reading all the places, all the things that he's done to impact the world. And it just feels like this holy place when you're there, even in the hotel room. I got there, and there was no TV in the room, and I, I hollered to Kimberly. Somebody stole the TV out of Billy Graham's conference center room. But it was on purpose, I guess. But I got to I got to a point where um, it was talking about all the millions and millions of folks that have heard Billy Graham preach, and I'm thinking this guy's 94 and he's up on the mountain, and I I had to pray, um, Lord, don't 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 ever let me hear anything about Billy. Don't ever let us hear anything bad about Billy, Lord. Just protect Billy. But you know what my prayer was specifically? Lord, protect Billy from Billy. Now, what, what, is it, what does that mean? What it means is, is that it could, it could be any one of us. Any one of us could be disqualified by the schemes of the adversary coming against us. If he can't get you into error in your theology and lies, guess what? He's going to find any way possible to get you sidelined, shelved, put on the bench, out of the race, out of the game, unusable because no one will listen, because your life doesn't match what you're preaching. Whether you're preaching here or you're preaching in your office, whether you're preaching at home, don't be a tabloid. And in my heart, I just cried out, Lord, he's 94. I don't know what could possibly happen up on that mountain, but don't let Billy fall. Don't let some story come out. That he would be another paterno and just ruin a legacy. Don't let it happen. Lord, protect Billy from Billy in his last days. Lord, protect me from me in my last days. Are, are, is that the cry of your heart? You know, when I said earlier that, that song we were singing, you're the air I breathe. You're everything I need. Isn't that the truth? We, if that's not the cry of your heart, that you're not desperate for him, then you will fall. You can't stand on your own. In chapter 10, as Paul finishes this section, I'm not going to read you all of it. He gives, in chapter 10, there, there shouldn't be a chapter break there. We put that there. It's a one continuous thought. As he goes in, 1 Corinthians 10, he goes through example after example, where in the Old Testament, Israel got off track. They fell. They fell. They fell. And God judged them. God judged them. God judged them. He benched them over and over and over. What's Paul's point? It can happen to you. He says, be careful. When he gets down to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, it's the, it's the climax of the passage. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. What's the point? It, can, it could be you. It could be me.
What's, what's the secret to not being disqualified from the race? What's the secret? Secret number one, I would say, has to be just know you, you, can, you can fail. The guy who taught me the Bible, um, one of the last days I spent with him, he, uh, he gave me and the other guys that were in my group a list of last things. And I wrote them in the back of my Bible. They're on the last page of the Bible that I'll one day give my sons. About a dozen things, and I'll only give you the last one. Because sometimes the last thing you say is meant to be the most important, right? Last thing he said to me, he says, remember, you're only a moment from disaster. And he says, I know that because so am I. Do you, do you know that, Christian? That in this spiritual war that's going on in the heavens, with this adversary that is he's worse than you could ever imagine, He's more underhanded. He's more crafty. He's more devious than you could ever imagine. Do you know that He is warring against you? And if any way He can keep you from bringing light into the dark world by putting you on the shelf, He'll do it. And if He can't get you into error, number two, He'll help disqualify you so that your life is un. Believable. Your testimony has no credentials. Paul says, I, I run a different race. I don't do everything I just want to do. He says, I run for the salvation of others. I run for the glory of God. And if that means I have to give up some things, just like these guys give up to be a part of these races, I'll, I'll gladly give them up. I'll buffet my body. I'll discipline my body. There is a war that goes on against our own self, church. And if we don't fight that good fight, we can find ourselves disqualified. Paul says, I'm not going to let that happen. Lest in all this preaching that I do in this world, I find at the very end, I'm a, I'm a hypocrite of the only truth that I proclaim. You know, we're left here not just for fellowship, not just for worship, not just to enjoy the Lord. We'll do all those things in heaven, won't we? We're left here for the primary purpose of being light in a dark world. How bright is your light? Are there things that may be shading the light that Christ is in you? Let me read you how one... Pastor put it, and we'll close. A guy named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. People who really want something always give some evidence of that fact. People who really desire something with the whole of their being don't sit down passively waiting for it to come. And that applies to us in this matter. There are certain things in this life that are patently opposed to God and His righteousness. There's no question about that at all. We know they are bad. We know they are harmful. We know they are sinful. I say that to hunger and thirst after righteousness means avoiding such things just as we would avoid the very plague itself. If we know that there is an infection in the house, we avoid that house, don't we? We segregate the patient who has a severe fever because it's infectious. And obviously, we avoid such persons. The same is true in the spiritual realm. But it does not stop at that. 
I suggest that if we are truly hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we shall even avoid things that tend to dull or tend to take the edge off our spiritual appetites. There are so many things that like the things that are quite harmless in themselves and which are perfectly legitimate. Yet if you find that you are spending too much of your time with them and that you desire the things of God less, you must avoid them. This is only common sense, Christian. Why don't you pray with me? We're going to ask God to help protect us from our own weaknesses, lest we be disqualified and made unbelievable in this world, lest our light goes out, lest we give in to even some of the things that would dull our sensitivity to the Spirit. And I want to do something as we... uh, as we offer this prayer, since we've got the kids in here, kids, would you do me a favor? If you're under 16, all right, why don't you come on up here with me? Would you just come up here with me and just stand up here with me? Come on. I won't bite you. You don't have to answer any questions. You just get to stand here. Come on around this side. Come on around this side, Q, so you can see mom and dad. All right. You guys are going to help me this morning, okay? Just by standing here. As uh, we parents pray that we are the men and women that God has called us to be in this world, um, there are a couple things that will help us. One of them is to remember that each of us, every one of us, are only a moment from disaster. We who think we can stand take heed lest we fall. We've got to know that. You know the other thing that helps me? It's these couple faces right here. Last night I watched Oprah's uh, interview with Lance Armstrong. And I didn't watch the whole thing, but I, I watched the part where she asked him, how did you tell your kids that you lied? And I don't know if he cried in any other part, but he cried right there. A few minutes later, my, my family got home. They were out for the day, and uh, Grady walked in. And all I could do was just look at his innocent face and just imagine and say, Lord, don't ever, <laughs> don't ever let me have to tell my son that I've let him down. So I'm going to pray, but don't you close your eyes. Don't you close your eyes. Let these be a reminder to us to guard our hearts, to guard our ways. We're only a moment from disaster. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to face them. Amen? Hey, Lord, we commit to living for you and living in the light. We commit to walking in the way as Christians of old in the first century committed to the way. We commit to the way. The straight and the narrow. And there's a lot of stuff, Lord, that in this world um, men may say is okay. But Lord, why don't you tell us what's okay? And why don't, you, why don't you guard our steps so that we don't even get close? That we not even stumble. That we not even come near to falling. Lord, protect us from ourselves. Lest in our own preaching, Lord, we know the truth. We tell others even. But Lord, uh, lest in our preaching, 
we'd be found disqualified ourselves. Father, we, uh, we trust that you'll prove yourself strong because we confess we're weak. And we don't do this out of duty. We do it out of our love for you, Father, because you first loved us. And we don't do it out of our own strength. We're not here this morning, Lord, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, we'll never disappoint you, Lord. We'll never disappoint these children. We confess that we're only a moment from disaster ourselves. We cry out in grace. Hold us up, Lord. Hold us up. Make us examples to those who are watching. Those who are watching in our homes, those who are watching in our church, and those who are watching in our world. Make us bright lights as we go out and serve. 